Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. You know, we were singing that song, uh, you know, You Are My Future and My Past. We, I think I've mentioned this before, but I just felt like I needed to, to share this for some people in here, but... A while ago, God spoke to me about that. I think it was when we were singing that song. And he said, Regret is caused by remembering my past apart from his blood. That's what regret is anchored in. It's remembering my past apart from the forgiveness that, was, that came through his blood. And confusion is caused by living my today apart from the awareness of his presence. He said, I'll be with you, I'll lead you and guide you into all truth. If I'm walking in confusion, it's because there's an area of my life that I'm living apart from the awareness that He's with me. And apart from the leading and guiding of His Spirit, because that was the promise that, they would, that He would lead me and guide me into all truth. And anxiety is caused by imagining my future apart from His promises. That when I think about my future, when I think about what's ahead of me, I imagine it apart from His promises. And so if I'm anxious, it's only because when I think about what's ahead, I'm thinking about it in a way apart from His promises. He promised He'd never leave me. He'd never forsake me. He promised that He would watch over me, that He would be my protector, my provider. He promised that He has good things in store for me, that I was saved for good works that He prepared beforehand, that I should walk in them. And if I don't remember those things as I think about my future, I'll have anxiety because I'm imagining it apart from His promises. If I'm, if I'm remembering my past apart from His blood, apart from the forgiveness that was, that was given at Calvary, then I'll have regret. I'll look back and I'll revisit my past apart from Him. And that's a lie. Because when I became, part, when I became born again in Him, every part of me was covered in Him. My past, my present, and my future. And for so many of us, we live with regret as we look back and we remember the past, but we remember it apart from a truth that happened between now and back then. See, you're not the person that you were when you go back and you remember your past. Something happened between today and the day that you're remembering with regret, the day you remember with fear, the day you remember with sorrow. And, and, and because of that, you can look at it and you can remember it, but it's different now because you understand I'm not the person that did those things. That's not me. That's not who I am. That's not denying something. That's not saying I never did that. That's saying the guy who did that had to be born again because on his own, that's what he did. When he wasn't yielded to Jesus, that's the way he lived. That was the very reason that Jesus came and died. But we can't just say that in theory without actually believing that he really did come and die so that we really could be born again. And that's the way we have to remember our past. And anytime I visited apart from his blood, now I'm walking around in the enemy's territory because he'll have a heyday and he will eat our lunch reminding us of things that we did and trying to make us feel condemned and to own those things. So just for anybody in here struggling with any of those three areas, if you, if you have anxiety as you think about the future, think about what it is that's making you anxious and then get into the Word and actually ask Him, God, what's the promise that You've spoke that directly confronts this thing? Because it says that You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That means if I'm imagining anything and it's causing fear to rise up in me, it's because I'm imagining it apart from Him, the One who brings the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. 
Like, just get into the Word and start asking God, God, what is the promise? If you have regret over your past, go into the Word and start reading those things where it says, therefore now, we see that any, if any man be, be in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and everything's become new. Everything. Everything. Just let the Word minister to you. Let the Word fight your battle. Don't try to fight it on your own when there's already one who spoke something so much better than something I could come up with on my own anyways. The Gospel's way better than what I could come up with on my own. It's way better. So I just want to encourage you guys in that. If I'm having confusion, if I'm just confused and I feel like you know I can't make it through today. Are you guys alright this morning? Yeah? Okay. I'm just making sure because I am and I'm not sure about some of y'all. I'm looking out there. You look like you're being questioned by the police. This should be good news. This should put a smile on your face. It's exciting stuff to know that this is truth. This is not the, the doctrine or the gospel of Roy. This is all straight from his word. Yeah, that stuff should, it's good news. Like, if people don't want the news that you have, it might not be good. And the gospel means good news. There's a reason they were trying to buy what the disciples had. And we have a hard time giving away what we carry for free sometimes. So let that land. Um, so I just want to encourage you in that. Like sometimes you don't need someone to pray for you. Sometimes you need to remember and believe the truth. There's nothing wrong with praying for each other. I, I, we talked last week about that, and we're going to talk this today if we get to it in time about that. But sometimes we don't need someone to pray for us. We don't need someone to lay hands on us. We don't, need some, you know, we don't need an experience. We don't need anything like that. We just need to actually believe the truth and let the truth set us free. And so if you are struggling in any of those areas, get into the Word. Open up your Bible and start going after and seeing the promises that directly confront the thing that you're facing. All right. Um, last week, who was here last week? All right, who wasn't here last week? Why? <laughs> no, last week, listen, last week we started talking about this, this, this idea of, of, of being family and of, of being for one another. And we talked about um, out of Proverbs uh, 27 where it talks about uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend more than the, the kisses of an enemy, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And we just broke that down. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to get the podcast and listen to that. Um, because I, I've heard from so many people just that there was so much truth in there that spoke directly to them about some things and cleared up some stuff for them. So, um, And we're going to kind of continue talking in that same vein because I just really do believe that right now, I don't know if you feel it, but I do, and I know some people I've been talking to feel it, God's doing something where He's drawing us together as a body, where He's actually bringing us and knitting hearts together. And there's this love that's developing for Him and for each other where we're excited about being around each other. We're excited about seeing each other become the people that God created us to be. And, and it's not this thing where we gather on a Sunday just to get excited and go out and try to get people to come back and join us on the next Sunday. It's this thing where we gather on Sundays because we love to be together and worship together. And because we just we want to stir each other up and spur each other on in love and good deeds. But then through Monday through Saturday, we're living our lives connected to each other in some way. Not that everyone's connected to everyone, but that everyone's connected to somebody. That everybody's living life, encouraging and, and, and praying for and, and, and with each other. And so 
I want to talk about that some more because I feel like there's something that, that our society is heading towards, and if we're not directly confronting it, we'll be going that way as well. Um, and that is this thing of self-sufficiency, that I don't need anybody. I don't need you to be okay. And I have a friend who preaches that all the time, and I know what he's talking about, but I think sometimes people get confused and they think that he's meaning I don't have any need for anybody else in my life. And what he's saying is I don't need you to respond a certain way for me to think it's worth it to love you. In other words, like my, de- my dependency in life, whether something's worth it or the way that I live is not based on your response or lack of response, that I'm okay even if you don't respond to the gospel, even if you don't act the way the gospel calls us to act. But there's this thing where, um, where like, it, it can be a good thing, you know, like when kids are like, no, I can do it myself. There's, this, there's a good part of being self-sufficient, of being able to say, like, I can do things myself. Like, you don't want to go through life just this needy thing that constantly needs everybody else around you for you to be okay. And you're never okay unless the people around you are okay and all that stuff. And I get that. But it can be a really bad thing if we read some verses through a lens of self-sufficiency. So we read in, in 2 Peter where he says that all things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to us through the true knowledge of Him who called us. And if we see that verse through a lens of self-sufficiency, we'll take that to mean, I have everything that I need and I don't need anybody else around me. I am perfectly okay by myself. The problem is, is that you have to take all of Scripture into counsel. You can't take a verse and make a theology based on one verse and say, see, because Peter said that, I do not need anyone around me. I am totally self-sufficient. As long as I have Him, I'm fine. And while there is some little bit of truth to that, there's also truth that God said it's not good for man to be alone. And we take that sometimes just to mean strictly in the sense of marriage because in that, t- in that time he was talking about finding a suitable helpmate for him. He creates Eve, takes her out of Adam. She was already there to begin with. He removes Eve from Adam. He brings them back together as one. He takes the one, makes it two, brings it back together as one. And that's, that is true and, and, and that is what he was talking about in that situation. But then Paul says a little later in the Gospels when he's writing a letter, he says, or I'm sorry, in his uh, epistles, he says, I wish that you were all like me. It's better for you to be unmarried. So if God is only saying that about marriage, that it's not good for man to be alone, then what Paul is saying directly opposes what God said in the beginning when he said it's not good for man to be alone. If, if God was meaning it's not good for a man to be alone, he has to be married, and that's the only thing he was meaning when he said that, then when Paul says it's better for you to be unmarried, now we have a problem. Unless when God said it's not good for man to be alone, he meant in a general sense, and while he was talking specifically about Eve in that moment, he was speaking forth a truth that would be true forever. That is, that we are not made to live this life alone. That even if you're single and not married, you don't have to live alone. That you don't need to be married for you to have the communion of walking with other people and being helped by other people. And so... um. So when we, I want us to talk about that a little bit, what it looks like to actually walk with each other. And, and as we talk about this, just realize, like, is it any wonder that the world and technology is so intent on trying to isolate us? Like, think about it. I don't have to leave my house to talk to 7,000 friends. I just need a computer or an iPhone or an Android if you're not born again.
the cult of Mac. <laughs> All the Mac culters, they're like, preach, preacher. Oh, listen, seriously, technology, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I am saying that it can become a really bad thing if we allow that to be the way that we connect with the world. And it's no wonder that depression rates are rising and that more people feel alone today. Listen, there are more people on the earth today than there were a hundred years ago. There are more ways to reach people accessible to everybody today than there were a hundred years ago. Yet in surveys done now and surveys done a hundred years ago, more people feel alone and like they don't have any real friends today than a hundred years ago. But we've all got thousands of friends on Facebook. We've all got a bunch of followers on Twitter. We, we, everybody likes our pictures on Instagram. And then there's the snaps and the kicks and all that stuff that I don't even know about. I don't even want to. But how could we feel so alone when we're so connected? And I think, it's a, I think it's a ploy, I think it's a tactic. Not that Facebook's a bad thing, not that Twitter, this thing, not that technology is a bad thing, but if we let that become the way that we feel connected to people, we build these fake relationships that are based on what we allow people to see, and we generally only allow people to see the best. Nobody looks through their pictures before they post it on Facebook and go, I look horrible in that picture, everybody deserves to see this. <laughs> no, no, you know what I'm talking about, you know that angle that makes your nose look the best. Your good side. And the filters. And the layering of filters, I have heard. And what are you doing? You're presenting this facade to people and you're saying, that when you burn the food, you don't take a picture usually. Some people do, they think, you know, for funny. But in general, you take pictures of the good food in the best lighting. The dishes that turned out great. Not the ones that you threw in the trash can when nobody was looking. It's the good ones that you show people. And everybody looking at your, at your pictures would say, wow, look at their amazing life. Every meal they cook looks fantastic. Even though if we start doing the math, we'd be like, wait a minute, they only eat once every 14 days? <laughs> every picture. They roll out of bed. And they just look amazing. The lighting. There must be an a, a, a orb that follows them around because every picture has the most amazing lighting. And their life is perfect. And look at the vacations they went on. And look at the places they've gone. And look how much fun they have. They're having so much fun. (laughs) My life stinks. (laughs) Wait a minute. I got a picture of me having fun. I'm fun. I have a blood. I made food. Two weeks ago, I made lasagna. It was perfect. And all of a sudden, now we start putting up these pictures. And then a bunch of people like your picture or comment about how great it looks. And even though it didn't mean anything to you five minutes ago, somebody talking about that lasagna that you made two weeks ago makes you feel so good because what you've presented in front of people, people have approved of. And if we're not careful, we will live for the approval of other people through an image that we create and present to the world and tell them that's who we are. And it's so easy. Where one time you had to like get on a computer 
and dial up and wait. You remember that? And you're waiting for it to connect. And all of a sudden it would connect. You'd sign in and all of a sudden you've got mail. And you're like, you were on the internet. You were connected. You were plugged. Now you can pull your phone out of your pocket and in two clicks you can see everything that's going on in everybody's world and you can tell everybody everything that's going on in your world. And yet right now, more people than ever in the history of the world feel alone and like they have no real friends. Something's out of whack. We're, I don't mean this to be a rant. I'm not anti-technology. I have a phone. I love it. I use it for all kinds of things. This is not anti-technology. This is saying there's things that can be a blessing or a curse and the way that we use them determines that. People are losing the ability to even have face-to-face conversation. You go to a restaurant, you look over, and the whole family's face has a glow on it because every one of them has a device in front of them while they're eating dinner. And we laugh, but we're, we're, we're creating a dysfunctional society that can't even relate to each other face-to-face anymore. People get offended if you call them on the phone. Some of you get offended if someone calls you on the phone. Oh my gosh, they called me. Like, you couldn't have texted that? (laughs) What if I just wanted to hear your voice? What if I wanted you to hear mine? Because there's something in the way that I'm saying this that I really want you to understand, and if I just write it in a text, you'll never actually catch it. And I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying And I don't want you to have to read into what I'm saying. Hey, uh, when we were over last night, who made those cookies? Or when we were over last night, who made those cookies? There's a lot that goes into tone. There's a lot that can be misunderstood. Sometimes we're losing that ability. We are. It's, it, I, I honestly believe like it has to start with God's people that we say, listen, like all those things are great, but they can never substitute. They can never take the place for real relationship. And I'm not going to live my life through a pseudo me that I put online and let everybody see the best moments of my life and have my life defined in people's eyes by that and give them a standard that they try to live up to so they go out. You realize people go places just to take pictures? I didn't know this was a thing. It's like phototourism. They go places and they don't even care. Like the sun's setting and they could not care less about the beauty of the sunset because they're trying to find the best angle to take a selfie. It's like put that thing away and turn around and actually face what God's doing and enjoy it for once. I know. I, I, I promise this is not like a rant against that stuff. We take selfies sometimes. We even had a selfie stick on our family vacation. Yeah, I know. But if we're not careful, we will live our lives through this image that we created and we carefully, carefully curate. And we only present to people the best. And what we do when we do that is we rob ourselves of the actual interaction with people that involve people into and let people into the actual, the reality of our lives. And we also force people 
to feel like they have to live just as perfect, just as fun, just as beautiful, just as delicious a life as you do. And they feel like they're less than. Because when I look at your pictures and I look at my life, I see this huge disparity without realizing that if I was actually to step into your life, it might look nothing like your pictures except for a few moments that you allowed people to see. That's okay when you're acquaintances. It's not okay when you're family. That level of relationship is not okay when you're a family. And that's what we're called to be is the family of God. He didn't bring Jesus into the world into an institution. He didn't bring Him into the world into a title. The only title that He ever gave Jesus, that He ever spoke over Jesus was what? This is My Son. This is My Beloved Son. Bob's going home to delete all his Facebook stuff. (laughs) Totally kidding. (laughs) He's like, he's talking about me. I'm going home and deleting everything. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So... Um, if you have your Bible, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. we we'll start in verse 9. What's that? Is it okay if you use your phone? <laughs> <laughs> Let each man live his own conviction. Guides him. Um, no, listen, I really am not against that technology. There's so many amazing things. Listen, what what gets said in this in this service, goes around the world, literally. We have a server, I look at it every now and then just to see how many countries. We're literally broadcasting to a country in, on, on every continent, except for Antarctica. Is that a continent? Okay. I get mixed up sometimes, you know? It shouldn't be, no one lives there. Like researchers. Or whatever. Um, but, but, and, and that's amazing. And we get, we actually get emails in and feedback from people all the time that say, Hey, just want to let you know, I, I listen to the messages every week. I live here. I listen to the messages every week over there. Hey, I, I just want you to know I, I, every week I, I, I can't wait till the, the message gets uploaded onto the internet so that I can listen to it. And I just, it's really been a blessing to me. We get people talking about that all the time. So it's, it is awesome. There are amazing uses of it. I'm not against it. I'm just saying that we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to replace what God created us for with something that man created. Because that's the truth. Like, there's always going to be a counterfeit. God created us to actually like, have face-to-face relationship with each other. And the counterfeit is that we have a face-to-face virtual relationship with each other. And there's some people that you, that's all you can have. And it's awesome for that. There's people that live across the country and you can't see them every day and you can't have an actual face-to-face relationship. And for that, it's great. But don't let it be a substitute for the people that you can. Alright. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse, verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. 
Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. God, I, I just thank you for today. I thank you for, for what you're doing in, in our hearts and in our lives. And I just pray today that as, as I speak, God, that you'd just remove my bias out of this, God, and that you would speak through me. God, give us ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to receive everything that you have for us. God, let our, let our lives, the field of our life, be good soil. That when the seed of your word goes in, it produces fruit that a world that does not know you and desperately needs to would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either one of them falls, the other one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. In other words, you can be walking down the road just doing just fine. And you can be working and you can be carrying something on your back and you can be okay and you can be one of these people that says, I don't need anybody, I'm fine, I'm fine. And all that may be true for a little while. But what if you stumble and fall and there's nobody around to help you up? The Bible says, woe to him. But it says if there's two walking together, laboring together, one falls, you don't even miss a beat. The other one reaches over, picks you up, you're back on your feet and you're right back where you were. And it says, if one lays down alone, they can't keep warm, but if two do. In other words, there are things in this life that are absolutely impossible alone. That's straight from the Word. It says that if one lies down alone, they, how will they keep warm? But if two do, they can keep warm. In other words, there will be things in your life that you're called to that are absolutely impossible for you to do alone. Absolutely impossible. And if everything in your life that you feel like you're doing that God's called you to do, you can do on your own, you may not be doing all the things He's called you to do. And you may have settled because you would rather do less and not have to rely on anybody else than do more but mean that you have to include other people into what you're doing. I, I, let me just say that I struggled with that for a long time and, and it's something that I have to be actually watchful over is that there's a lot of things I would rather just do myself and if I can't do them myself, then I don't want to do them because then I don't have to rely on somebody else. That's a really, really, really bad trait. That's a really bad habit to get into because A, it assumes that there's nobody else out there that could do it better than you. And B, it limits what people around you are allowed into because what if you doing the thing God called you to do and asking someone into that with you is the way for them to actually step into something God's created them for? What if it's not just about us? What if it's not just about our lives? But what if really when we step into things that God's called us to do that are impossible to do alone and we bring someone in alongside of us, we're actually helping them step into what they're called to and they're stepping into the destiny that God created them for. And when we stand over there and say, if I can't do it alone, I won't do it myself because we want to be self-sufficient, we may never have somebody disappoint us. That is true. That's the, the reward of doing that, is that you're never disappointed by somebody not being or fulfilling or doing what you expected them to do. But you also limit how much you're able to do and the ability that you have to do the things that you do. The other thing to remember is this. Listen, there's some things in life that you may hate. There's things as a leader that I cannot stand doing. And so I assume everybody else in the world hates to do them too. Because everyone's like me. 
And so I just do them because I know that if I was somebody else and someone asked me, I wouldn't want to do it. So I don't want to burden somebody with it, so I just do it myself because if I hate it, there's nobody else that would want to do it. And there's people who actually love to do the thing that I hate to do. And by me doing it, I'm not doing as good a job as they could do, and I'm keeping them from the opportunity and the ability to do the thing that God created them to do. All because I would rather just do it myself and not have to depend on and be self-sufficient and say, I'm a, I am okay. I don't need anybody. What a lie. What a thief. So, and, and, so he says that, that, that like, if two lie down together, then they can, they can keep warm. But what, how can one be warm alone? In other words, like literally think about it. What are you doing in your life? And I'm letting this word challenge me. Like, what am I doing in my life that I can't do by myself? What are the things that I feel like God's called me to do that I can't do alone? That I, what are the things that, I, that are impossible for me? How am I living my life that's impossible for me to keep warm alone? That I have to have somebody else next to me? That I have to have somebody else with me? Are there things in my life that I feel like God's called me to, but I can't do myself, so I just shrink back from it and say I'm not going to try it because I can't do it alone? Because I'm afraid, A, to step out and, and make myself vulnerable to somebody else, and I want to appear like I have everything together? Because I have to keep that image. Because they only know me from Facebook and if I told them this, it would confront that. And I never want these two to meet so I keep them separate. Because I want Facebook online me to never ever meet with real me. Because if that ever happens, people will know the truth and I'll be outed and they'll realize I'm not as perfect as they think I am. Guess what? Nobody thinks you're that perfect anyways. (laughs) We're on to you. Why? Because we know me. Because I know the pictures that I put them on and I know what I look like when I look in the mirror. And sometimes I'm like, who are you? (laughs) Literally, like, if people have only seen you online and they meet you and they don't recognize you when they see you, it's probably time to quit with some of the filters. Hmm. Trying to find where I should go next because I don't think I'm going down that one there. All right, open them up to Second Samuel chapter twenty-one. This is my favorite, probably my favorite story that most people don't know is in the Bible. I think I've preached on it one other time. Of course, it's in the book of Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15 says, Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his, with his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Banab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You will not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. So here's David. He's this mighty warrior. There's so much in, this, in, this, in that one little short story. But, but David is this mighty warrior. He's the mightiest warrior that ever led the army of Israel. Ever. 
They told stories about him around the campfires. They called him the Lion. The Lion of Judah was his nickname because he was so fierce, so ferocious in battle. He'd been killing giants since he was a teenage boy. And now he's leading men out into battle and he's a mighty, fierce warrior feared by every single enemy of the Israelites. And yet in doing what God's called him to do, in leading the Israelites against the Philistines in battle, he becomes weary. Just because you're doing what God's called you to do and has anointed you to do doesn't mean that you'll never become tired. The thing of, well, I just never get tired. Well, you might not be doing enough. Well, because I only do what God's anointed me to do. David was anointed to lead the men. He was in full-on obedience. And yet, after fighting the Philistines, he came to a place where he became weary. It's okay if sometimes after fighting the enemy and after doing the things that God's called you to do, you get to a place where you feel a little bit tired and a little bit weary. It's okay. It might be good to tell people around you, you know what? I'm a little worn out right now. I'm going to be fine. It's okay. I'm still filled with His Spirit. I still am anointed by God to do the things that I'm doing, but right now, I'm a little overwhelmed. Right now, I'm stepping into a new season of my life and I'm having to do things I didn't have to do before and I'm trying to figure out what it looks like and I'm balancing things I haven't had to balance before and I'm getting a little bit worn out and I'm feeling a little bit weary. See, you can do that when you have real relationship with people. And even if you don't go to them and say, it doesn't say that David went to his men and said, hey guys, I'm getting a little bit weary. Could you watch out for me? David had relationship with the men around him. He battled with them. They knew each other. They were his brothers. And so when they saw that he's getting weary, they say, we better be careful. We better keep our eye out because right now he's in a place where he's vulnerable. And it doesn't say that David even knew that this guy was hunting for him. So one of the descendants of the giants. See, the giants and their descendants hate and always have and always would hate David because of what he did to Goliath. And so no matter what he's doing, they are constantly thinking they got to figure out a way to kill him. You have an enemy in the land that hates you because of what your big brother did to their champion. And no matter what, they're going to constantly be looking for ways to attack you. And you notice it says that he girded himself with a new sword. The enemy always thinks the problem is the sword. He always thinks, I need a new way to attack. He doesn't understand. It, it, it doesn't matter how many new swords you make. The thing that protects me is not that your sword's not good enough. It's that my covenant is greater. That, that It says in Isaiah that this will be the heritage of the servant of the Lord. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from Me, says the Lord. In other words, I'm in a covenant with God. The problem isn't that you don't have a good enough sword. The problem isn't that you need a new sword. The problem is you need a better covenant. Because the covenant that I have is greater than yours. Because the One who protects Me is greater than the One who makes your swords. And so this guy thinks, okay, I have a new sword. I've girded myself with it. It's time to go kill David. And now that I have this new sharp sword, I'm going to go and kill him. And it says that before he could get to David, Abishai, the son of Zariah, struck him down and killed him. 
We need people around us that will be Abishai's that will say, listen, I love you and I'm for you and I'm watching out for you. And if the enemy is trying to attack you, because our battle is no longer against flesh and blood. So it doesn't mean that you attack people that are coming against them. It means what? It means in the spirit, I will go to war for you. And I've got a sword that's greater than their sword. I've got truth that's greater than what they believe. And if any enemy comes against you, especially in a time where you may be weak or you may be vulnerable, you may be worn out, you may be a little bit overwhelmed, you can trust this that while they're looking for you i'm looking for them and that shiny new sword will never see a drop of blood because before it can touch you i find them and that's what abishai did for david and that's who we're called to be for each other that we literally live in a place where we care about each other where we know each other listen if abishai knows David through stories he's heard and through pictures and posters. He has no idea that David's overwhelmed, that David's feeling weary, and that somebody's out to harm him. If he's not actually living in relationship with him, he has no clue that there's somebody hunting him, that David's weary at the moment, and that he needs to come to his defense and and come to his rescue. But because they live in relationship, because they're committed to each other, and because they actually know each other, they actually allow each other into their lives, and they know and are fully known. That's a scary thing, because it means the thing we talked about last week. It means being vulnerable. It means not thinking, well, I'm the anointed one of God. I can't let anybody know that right now I'm feeling a little bit weary. There's the temptation to do that. And if everybody around us is perfect and never weak and never weary and never has any times where they're overwhelmed, then the pressure's really on us to never be weak, weary, or overwhelmed. And so we all perpetuate this facade which says, I wake up every morning and I am, I am perfect. I don't need anything. Everything is great. I have just as much energy as any other day and I've never been overwhelmed. I'm never weary because I'm walking with Him and in His anointing, David was doing every single bit of that and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king, anointed by Samuel to lead the people into battle, blessed by God, to do the things that he's doing. And yet, after fighting the Philistines for a while, he gets weary to the point where the enemy sees and says, "Uh uh-huh, now's the time. Think about it. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Even then, he's not alone. It says the Spirit of God was with him, ministering to him. But what does the enemy do? It says, and when he saw that he had become weak, and that he was hungry. Then he went to Jesus. Why? Because he's always going to wait for the time he feels like you're the most vulnerable to try and attack. It's why Ishbi Banab thought, okay, perfect. He's been fighting us long enough. He's back at his tent. He's tired. He's weak. He's weary. When he's at his best, there's no way that I can take him. But right now, he's at his weakest. I'm going to go and kill him. He sees Jesus. He knows the day, he doesn't confront Jesus the day Jesus walks into the wilderness. Why? He hasn't been fasting for 40 days. His flesh isn't physically weak. He waits and he looks from the outside and he sees, okay, he's in a position right now where he's physically weak. Now is my chance. I'm going to go and attack him. And if you think he's not watching your life to find out when you might be feeling weak, weary, or overwhelmed because of the things that you've been going through, and if you think that he will keep his hands off and play fair and be nice, You're sadly mistaken. He's waiting and he's watching. 
And He particularly is watching to find when you are alone. Think about it. When does He go after Eve? He finds her when she's alone. Why? Because if Adam's there and he says, is it true that God said you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden? Adam says, no. And that's the end of the conversation. But because Eve didn't understand and hadn't apparently heard or didn't remember or was in a place of weakness or maybe was in a place of being a little confused at the time, she enters into his world and starts bargaining with him. Oh, no, no, no. God said we can eat all the fruit. Just that tree over there, we can't eat or touch it. Now she's added to what he said. We talked about this. Don't add things where God didn't. Don't add in. And he said we can't eat it or touch it. Why? Because you're setting yourself up because then all the enemy has to do is prove that one, the thing that you added in that you believe that isn't true. That's why we have to make sure that everything we believe actually comes from the Word of God. That God Himself spoke it from His mouth. Because if we take something that we or somebody else added to it and we make that a part of the Gospel, when the enemy shows us that that part wasn't real, the rest of it is all in question. And so Eve makes up and she adds words to what God said. She said, oh no, no, we can eat all the fruit in the garden except for that one over there, that one tree. Of that tree, he said, we're not to eat or touch it or we'll surely die. God never said don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. Not touching it would be a good idea. See, sometimes the things that we add are good ideas. We just got to make sure that we added that in there and we know that we added that in there and that people know we added that in there. That, listen, this is not what God said, but this is a really good idea. He said don't eat it. We say don't even touch it because if you never touch it, there's no chance you could ever eat it unless you stand under the tree with your mouth open and wait for it to fall and nobody's going to do that. But she, Eve doesn't do that. She says, oh no, this is what God said. And now she's set herself up because all the enemy has to do is show her that one of the things she said isn't true and he'll get her to question everything. And I can just picture him going over there. I'm touching it. I'm not dead. You want to touch it? I don't know if I should. God said if we touch it, we're going to die. Maybe your God is a liar. And because you're standing on a principle that was man-made, not God-spoken, now He's got you in a place where you'll question even the very things that God did speak. I guess I'll touch it. With trembling hands, reach out, grab hold of it. Flinching in that moment and then realizing, I didn't die. And now because He's disproved something that you made up that isn't even true, now you question everything else. And if God was lying about that, what else might God be lying about? And if God can't be trusted in that, what else might God not be able to be trusted in? Be real careful that the belief that we build is not based on something that a man or a woman, even with good intentions, added to the Word of God. Because the second that gets disproven, the rest of it is all in question. And Eve does the unthinkable and does the very thing that God said, listen, you can do everything. You just can't do this. And all of a sudden, she puts the fruit to her mouth and she takes a bite. Why? Because if God can't be trusted in this, 
he probably can't be trusted in this. And that's why it says in the book of Revelation that a curse will be added to anyone who adds or takes from these words. Why? Because the second we add our words to it, and listen, there's nothing wrong like Paul said. He said, listen, I, I believe I have the Spirit in this. There's nothing wrong with telling people, this is what I believe. This is what I do. I'm not supposed to eat that fruit, so I don't even touch it. Because I know that if I never touch it, there will never ever be an opportunity for that to wind up in my mouth. That's okay. Just let people know, that's not what God said. That's my, that's thus saith Roy. Like God said, don't eat it. I say don't even touch it. Because I'll never have to worry about finding myself holding it in my hand wanting to take a bite if I never actually allow it to come into my hand. It's okay to do that. Just make sure that you and everybody else knows and that they're not building a theology based on something that you added to the Word that they think is God. I also want to just say this. Like, like in that, totally off topic, but in that example, everything was messed up when that happened. There was severe consequences and all kinds of things that, that God never intended for humanity happened in the moment that she did that. And a lot of times I talk to people and they say, well, you know, I've, just, I've made mistakes and I feel like you know, maybe I've messed things up or I've messed up God's plan or all these things. And I ask them, okay, so where right now are you living in disobedience? Like, be honest and ask yourself, what am I doing right now that I know for a fact I am disobeying the voice of God? Well, nothing. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not anywhere, but not that I know of. Okay, so then you probably are not screwing things up. Because in order for you to really mess things up, you have to know what God said and you have to actually disobey intentionally something that God has told you. That's why he told them, don't eat the fruit. Why? Because if they ate the fruit, everything would change. He didn't let them wander around in the garden and hope they didn't eat the fruit that would make everything change. He said, listen, there's only one thing you can do that will actually screw things up. So I'm going to tell you what it is so that if you screw things up, you know you're screwing things up when you do it and you're intentionally screwing things up when you do it and you have to actually know that you're doing it before you do it for things to happen and consequences to come. And even then, he says, okay, so you did that. There's going to be some consequence. There's also going to be a cure. And he makes a sacrifice. But don't get so, like, sometimes people, like, you go through a hard time in your life or you just feel like, you know, I was talking to a young guy and he's like, I don't know, I just feel like right now I'm not sure if what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing. I said, well, are you living in disobedience? No. Then take it this way. What has God called you to do? Well, I mean, you know, to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, so what has He told you to do to get there? Well, nothing right now. Okay, so what has God spoke to you as a man? Like it says that if you can't provide for yourself, you're worse than an unbeliever. The Bible says that. Right? It says that a man should be able to go out and work and earn everyone who's physically capable. So go out and do the thing that you know God spoke to you and trust that He's teaching you the things that you need for the other things that He spoke to you. And don't try to position yourself and maneuver to get there because otherwise you'll think, well, if God called me here and I'm here, the closest way is this. And God may want to take you that way because over here He needs to teach you something so that when you get there, you're prepared for it. To mess things up, and listen, I'm not saying that you mess things up and you just never get another chance, but I am saying like to mess things up to the point where you actually have to go back and fix stuff and start over again sometimes and it costs you some things, you'll have to know beforehand that you're about to make a choice that will mess things up. 
and God will clearly speak it to you and you'll have to choose disobedience because it's been that way from the beginning. All right. That is a good word. Like, that's encouraging to me, right? Because it's like, sometimes we, sometimes we just, you know, and a lot of times, like, everything isn't always what God's telling you every single thing to do. Like, I, uh, sometimes I tell Jackson, Jackson, go outside and play. I don't care if Jackson goes outside and plays golf, tennis, rides his bike, goes and plays with his cousins. As long as he's outside playing, whatever he chooses is fine with me. And sometimes we find ourselves in a place where God hasn't spoke a specific thing. It's not like God said, buy the red car. Just said, buy a car. Go pick the car that you want. Sometimes God just says, go and work. He doesn't say, go work this job for this person for this amount of money. It's not always just so crystal clear laid out in front of you the plan. Sometimes He just says, go play in the yard. And He doesn't care if you grab a tennis racket or a baseball. As long as you're being obedient to the thing He called you to do, He'll bless whatever you choose. Why? Because you're growing up and you're maturing. When our kids are little... We have to tell them what to wear because it doesn't match if we don't. That's okay when they're four. It's cute. If they're 24, somewhere along the line, we've failed to raise them into people who can actually make quality decisions. I believe that at some point God wants us to grow up to the point where He doesn't have to tell us every little thing to do where He can speak a word to us, which is what? Go provide for your family. Okay, and then He'll bless whatever way you choose to provide for your family. He'll give you talents. He'll give you giftings. He'll put desires in your heart toward things. And there may be times where He does say specifically. But if He hasn't said specifically, then maybe all He said was go play in the yard. Because there may be a time He says go play golf. You'll have to pick up a tennis racket to be disobedient. And then there's times where He says go play in the yard. And it doesn't matter what you pick up. Just be free in that. Like, relax a little bit. He's not in heaven with this like mysterious smirk on his face going, oh my gosh, they're about to screw up their life. He's in heaven wanting more than you are for you to become who He created you to be. And if you really need to know something, if you really seek Him, you'll really know. And if He's not speaking, maybe it's because He trusts that when you act on what He already has spoken, that you'll be right where He wants you. So we're just going to close up with that because the next, rest of it goes into practical. What does it look like? Talking about prayer and intercession and, um, and encouragement and stuff like that. So we'll get into that next week. We'll get into um, how Paul wrote in Galatians that, uh, brethren, if, even if, if anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking for yourself. Look into yourself so that you will not too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. There's actually a part of the law of Christ which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's actually a part of that law that can't be fulfilled unless you're actually bearing each other's burdens. It kind of destroys the whole self-sufficiency thing. Puts some holes in it, sets it on fire, and sinks it. Because if you're not bearing each other's burdens, and here's the other side of that, in order for you to actually fulfill the law of Christ and bear each other's burdens, that means there has to be somebody out there who is actually willing to let you come alongside and step in and help them carry the load. That's not a one-sided commandment. Jesus said, greater love is this, not, has not a man than this, than he would lay down his life for another. That means for every one of us to lay our lives down, there has to be somebody who's willing to let us lay their lives down for us. 
It's not one-sided. It's not like I lay my life down and just lay it down. That means there's somebody who's actually on the other end of that that's receiving the life that I'm laying down for them. If he says that bearing one another's burdens helps to fulfill the law of Christ, that means there has to be somebody out there that's not stubborn enough when you say, hey, let me help you carry that. No, no, no. I got it myself. I don't need your help. Somebody has to say, okay, I'll let you help me with this. It's two-sided. It goes two ways. We're going to talk all about that next week. So God, I, I just thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you that you've called us to live in relationship with each other and, and not to put up a fake plastic version of me, God, but to be known. God, that you've surrounded us with people that love us, not an idea of us, they love us. I pray, God, that we would be people that would love people, not an idea we've built of people, but actually people. God, that when we see the parts they didn't put on the internet, that we're okay and we don't run away. We don't abandon them. When we see the picture that was less than perfect, that we don't allow that to change the way we feel about people or our willingness to know them and love them. But we would be people who would actually love each other for who we are, not the idea of who we are. God, that we would become vulnerable with each other and let each other in on our lives. God, I just pray that right now for every person here, that everybody here would have somebody in this world that they can be who they are in front of. That will love them for who they are. God, not, not, not let them be comfortable if where they are isn't where You want them to be. That won't just let be okay with them not being okay, but will love them where they are and walk with them to where You've called them. I thank You, God, that You do meet us right where we are, but it's never to stay there. You just understand that. Listen, the, the thing of, well, it's okay. God meets you where you are. He met the prodigal son where he was. That is true. But he had no intentions of staying there. He met him where he was to put the robe on him, the ring on him, the slippers on him, and bring him back into his home, back into his kingdom. Yes, God meets you where you are. But he has no intentions of you staying there. It's to take you where he wants you to be. But God, I just thank you for that. I thank you that we'd be those people. God, that would walk that line of, of meeting people where they are, but always encouraging them and trying to bring them to where You've called them to be. Without dragging, without condemning. Always loving. And I just thank You for doing that in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.